Let's Whoa. start off with a little surprise. Oh no. <laughs> oh Jesus. <laughs> oh no. A very merry gauntlet Christmas. Oh my god. Oh boy. What do we got here? Uh oh. I bring checks mix and and, th- and then this guy one ups me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I brought up this, huh? Yeah. I couldn't resist when I found it. I got freaking one ups big time here. You've seen the uh, the cruel code of Bushido, you know what this means. Oh my god. Oh my god. What you're looking at are original Mexican lobby cards from Durkey's first run in Mexico. Perdido en el desierto. And you each have, well, yours are, each one's a little bit different. Andy's features the father, because I always think of Andy telling daddy <laughs> oh, stories. Daddy, look at that look in his eyes, dude. <laughs> oh, my God. That is a man uh, <laughs> regretting so much in his life. <laughs> you see his eyes? It's haunting. The gods truly must be crazy for that one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. Thank you so much. Dude, You're that's welcome. very this unbelievable you found this. I got Durkee in the sand. That, that dude with yeah. the dog, <laughs> amazing. Debut day, Durkee Hayes. Yeah, Oof. debut day, Durkee. Yeah, opening and closing night for Durkee Hayes. <laughs> the policeman isn't there to create disorder. Oh, wow. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier, a gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and I'm joined here today by... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic, and the other two are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic in one way, shape, or form. It was my turn to pick the topic this week, and savvy listeners know that we here are uh, certainly enthusiasts of the imperfect object in cinema, uh, many times in our um, in our in our brief history together, uh, recording this podcast, we have at various points brought films to the pod that are flawed in some way, incomplete, have have had issues in their making or their post-production. And, and we have, you know, uh, talked about these things and, and found um, lots of, of, of uh, interesting things to, to, to help us, I think, um, engage with the films a little bit more. Um, so I thought it would be fun to, to actually make that the focus for a week, to, to specifically try to find films that had notoriously troubled, problematic, complicated production histories. Um, I asked the boys to bring me films that were um, 
broken on a certain level and that we could then dive in and, and certainly look at what happened and, and then measure that against what actually arrived on the screens. And you both certainly delivered. We got two films which have had a lot of issues, long, well-documented issues with their making and subsequent release. Interestingly enough, we've got two sci-fi epics to look at this week <laughs> from two very, uh, uh, I think, excellent filmmakers. But as we will certainly discuss today, being a great filmmaker uh, does not mean you are immune from a disastrous filmmaking experience. So, without further ado, let's bring the films out. Typically on The Gauntlet, we like to start with the earlier of the films. So, Ryan, why don't you tell us what you brought today? Absolutely. Well, all right, everybody wish me luck with this one. Uh, this one's a bit of a doozy. So, when you had introduced the topic and we're talking about troubled productions, one of the first films that did come to my mind is this film that I ended up landing on simply because of the fact that, depending on how you define it, it was never finished. It was a film that had begun production in the 70s. It was a huge, big, you know, inflated budget sci-fi epic shot from 1976 to 77 by the great Polish filmmaker Andrzej Zhuawski, who is very famously known for directing Possession, one of the coolest horror films of all time. He's directed a ton of really wild, feral, in-your-face, crazy-ass movies. And this was supposed to be his magnum opus, the film On the Silver Globe. But as I said, you know, trouble was on its way for On the Silver Globe, because when he had spent two years shooting this film, spending lots and lots of money with its lavish costumes, locations scattered all around the world, the Baltic Sea, the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. He was all over the place, the, the mountains in Georgia. Late in the production, when the film was probably about 80% complete, the Polish minister, the vice minister of cultural affairs, Janusz Wilhelmi, pulled the plug. He thought boo. that the boo. <laughs> he thought that the production was too subversive. Uh, you know, at the time, the official reporting was that just it was too expensive, so they decided to pull the plug on it. But you know, everyone who was in on it knows that the reason that it got shut down was because it was going against the ideology of the state. The man who pulled the plug ordered that all the prints be destroyed, that all the costumes be destroyed, and that the whole thing just be erased from memory. Thankfully. The film was preserved. The negatives had survived. A lot of the costumes did not. Many crew members did, you know, hold on to things and try and, like, hoard them. And even though this vice minister died, like, a couple of months after he pulled the plug on the production, they weren't able to finish this film until about a little over 10 years later, in 1988, and that's when it was officially released. And, you know, Andy, you had prompted us by mentioning films where you can see on screen the evidence of this troubled production and that is built into the finished product we have of On the Silver Globe. The remaining bits of the film, they claim about four-fifths of it were shot, that a fifth is missing. Personally, I think that's up for debate. I think a little bit more than a fifth is missing. However, the way they handled those gaps then was Zhuavsky 
Sonya just ran around Warsaw, 1980s Warsaw, with a camera, a really wild camera that almost looks like a Jonas Mikas films at times because of how shaky it is, and then he narrates what we're missing, these gaps that we're missing, in a very calm manner that doesn't really match the rest of the film that is extremely high energy. So I guess, you know, let's, let me try and kind of encapsulate what this film is. It is an adaptation of Zhuavsky's grand-uncle's novels. Uh, Jerzy Zhuavsky wrote uh, a trilogy of, of novels, science fiction novels, in the early 1900s. It was, like I believe, from 1901 to 11, called the Lunar Trilogy. It's about a bunch of astronauts that go to the moon, colonize the moon, and then the repercussions of that. This film is not going to, you know, the, the moon. Uh, it's a bit more vague because we're now in 1970s Poland, uh, question mark whether it's Poland or not. But it is, uh, you know, it's more extravagant. It's more extreme. We know what the moon looks like. And in this film, it follows a similar structure. It's about three parts. The first part, we've got three astronauts who fly to an unnamed planet, or actually multiple astronauts, only three survive. They crash. A lot of astronauts. A lot of astronauts, three of which survive. One of them is a woman named Marta, who is currently pregnant from uh, Thomas, who died in the crash, and she gives birth to a child that grows really, really rapidly, kind of like Udo Kier in uh, Lars von Trier's The Kingdom, was something I was thinking about, having watched that very recently. Uh, but then Martha also ends up uh, bearing children with the other two remaining surviving astronauts, Piotr and Jerzy. And eventually, this results in a new population on this planet, and the only then surviving astronaut after a few decades, Jerzy, is treated like a demigod amongst all of these like new inhabitants of this planet that primarily is like off on the coast. Part two um, <laughs> involves an astronaut named Merrick who had received this video diary of these three astronauts like first expedition. The first chunk of the film feels like it's cut like a YouTube film where it's like there's a POV camera, it's really choppy editing, and it's a video diary. So that transmission gets back to Earth and this new astronaut goes to Earth and he's treated like a messiah. He's the one that was promised to arrive on this crazy, crazy planet. The second act is very long, it's very crazy, they yell a lot, they run around a lot, a lot goes on. The third chunk of the movie is, it's kind of back and forth because you realize that the reason Merrick, this messiah that came to this new planet, is because his girlfriend was having an affair and wanted to hang out with this other uh, astronaut on Earth, and then you get the repercussions of that. But ultimately this film is Zhuavsky exploring the, uh, you know, he mentions at one point in the film a character says, psychology is the fascism of the soul, right? And <laughs> I feel like that's pretty symptomatic of how this whole movie feels. Uh, it's really aggressive. It's about faith. It's about, you know, creating the image of God and then tearing it down again uh, because of our inherent unhappiness and just, you know, a lot of the ills of the of the human uh, human soul, right? And um, It's about a lot of things. It's about a lot of things. I couldn't even begin to describe the amount of things it's about. But it's, you know... I had seen it many years ago. It, it has haunted me ever since. I was excited to take another look at it. Not sure how much clearer the film is uh, having returned to it, but I still feel like I got a lot out of it. And I'm excited to hear what, what you both got out of it. So that is Andrzej Zhuavsky's On the Silver Globe from 1976-1988. Thank you, Ryan. Marsh, what about your film? Well, one of the... Uh 
things that happened to me uh, in in the pandemic quarantine of 2020 uh, was I became obsessed with the films of Australian bad boy Russell Mulcahy. And so this sort of popped into my head, especially when Ryan was thinking about On the Silver Globe, a film that I had also seen uh, many years ago and, and loved. I was sort of thinking of something to pair with uh, on the Silver Globe. And so I, I returned to Russell, and I and I feel bad because I think Mulcahy's made a lot of amazing films, and I'm going to bring, a, you know, one of his worst films to the table, <laughs> table here tonight. But that being said, uh, it's a film that I think has uh, quite a lot of nice qualities, uh, despite its problematic production. And that is, of course, Highlander 2, The Quickening. Highlander 2 The Quickening, of course, is the sequel to the cult classic Highlander, which uh, was kind of a flop on release, but uh, became very popular on home video. And so, of course, the sequel was commissioned, uh, and the production uh, decided to, of course, uh, shoot in the wonderful country of Argentina uh, in the mid-80s, which was going through uh, some trouble as they transitioned to democracy uh, in the 1980s, and it was kind of a, an unstable place, so perfect for a, a sort of runaway production. The estimated cost savings by shooting in Argentina uh, were vast, and so they went down there, uh, and the filmmakers learned the, the harsh reality, which was that there was no infrastructure to make a science fiction epic in Argentina, so they ended up having to fly in uh, significant elements of lighting and costume and the production itself and basically build from scratch uh, a production that could handle uh, big budget special effects, right? Uh, and so that was really problem uh, number one. They, you know, they shot the film, although it was not completely shot, at which time the Argentinian economy uh, crashed. The film was taken over by the insurance uh, and bond company, uh, who brought in a new team of editors to finish the film as fast as possible and get it to theaters as a cost-saving measure. So Mulcahy and his entire team were essentially fired uh, before certainly the film could be edited and even, I believe, before the film could be entirely shot. Uh, it was released in theaters with incomplete effects, it also uh, was dramatically changed in its structure and chronology from initial conception, uh, and it was absolutely savaged by everyone who saw it. Claims were made it was one of the, the worst films of all time, and it was uh, a huge flop. The budget ballooned to over $30 million, uh, and it made less than half of that back at the box office. But of course, that's not the end of the Highlander 2, the quickening <laughs> saga, because in 1995, thanks to the home video fan base of Highlander, Mulcahy was commissioned to do his own renegade cut. And he, to the best of his ability, not only restored the chronology of the original screenplay, but also changed some elements that the fans didn't really like in the sequel, specifically the fact that they explained the immortals in the second one by uh, saying they are they are aliens from the planet Zeist. 
that was all removed in the Russell Mulcahy cut. So really, it's more of a time travel scenario uh, in the existing version. And, and as I learned, it's actually hard to see the original theatrical version of this movie. And we watched the, the modern cut, you know, which has new special effects and, and Mulcahy's restored vision to a certain extent. There's still obvious gaps and problems <laughs> with the film. Uh, and depending on your tastes, you know, you, you may or may not like it, but it's a film uh, that I do really adore. It is uh, extremely Baroque in its visual style. It has the Mulcahy elements of like his music video directing, a lot of flashing lights, dolly shots, crane shots. I mean, he is always visually interesting and that's what I love about him you know this guy who really did pioneer uh, in music videos so very very flashy style and yeah you know the plot who cares you know yeah. there's there's time traveling immortals in this film we once again have Christopher Lambert as McLeod uh, the Highlander don't ask uh, you know how this connects to the first one because as we were discussing off mic the first one was intended to uh, be the only one and it ends with him not as an immortal but uh, just a regular human who can now love and have children and, and be a person but back where we are uh, here in the, in the quickening. Uh, it's 2024. Uh, McLeod is old. He's waiting to die. Uh, and for some reason, Michael Ironside, at his most villainous, uh, decides to try and kill him in the future where he had banished him to exile. Doesn't really hold up to any any close examination of like what is exactly is going on in uh, the motivations of General Katana there. But anyway... Again, I, I can't even... We'll get into it. Yeah. Sean Connery's back inexplicably after being beheaded in the first film. I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. But it'll all make sense, I think, once we <laughs> once we talk about it. So, yeah, it's, it's an action extravaganza, you know? It's uh, sword fighting. It's cool matte shots of a dystopic future. Uh, John McGinley's running a corporation that protects, you know, the... the uh, the radiation from Earth, and so there's no sun on this on Earth anymore. Uh, anyway, a lot to chew over. Um, that's Highlander 2, the quick thing. Honestly, way better than the first one, too, I think. <coughs> oh, interesting. I saw the first that's one a pretty... Bold, that's a bold take. <laughs> I saw the first one pretty recently again. I liked him as a kid, and I saw the first one rather recently, and I thought it sucked, and I thought this <laughs> wow. was cool. I mean, this thing was incoherent, but... I was like, this this rocks. It this. is a it is a step up, uh, I think, like visually, yeah. you know, and budget wise. There's just a lot more uh, money on the screen in this one. But I digress. That's Andy, bold, that's a bold ass take. <laughs> it's a very bold ass take. I agree. Wow, I didn't that's even think that'd be controversial. That's yeah. a generational yeah, difference. Maybe, maybe. Well, thank you, Marsh. Um, <laughs> we'll, we will definitely come back to that, Ryan. You know. <laughs> No need to get uh, in the in the trenches yet yeah. on, on which one is better. But um, yeah, I think what's interesting right off the bat about both of these films, and I think something that I've noticed that happens in a lot of films that have, you know, notoriously, you know, I've found anyway uh, in a lot of films that end up having like, you know, big production problems is a lot of times these films for directors come after moments of success. You could say relative success, but but certainly um, I find that 
it's often following a moment of triumph for them. I think both of these films in their own way, uh, for the directors anyway, like have that going for them. That, you know, in the case of Zhuavsky, uh, he was basically asked to come back to Poland and more or less given this like blank check, given right. all the resources of the, the like Polish National Film Commission to do this because of his success in France and in Europe and in festivals. Klaus Kinski. Yeah. And for uh, Mulcahy, it's, it's, I think, kind of similar. Mulcahy was somebody who had been on the rise for a while. And even though, as you said, Highlander initially wasn't a huge box office success in America, it had a big following on the home video circuit and, and it Europe. was very popular in Europe. And, and if I'm not mistaken, it was actually like European distributors who were like, we got to follow this up because this was big in France. Now, I think you mentioned watching a documentary on it. I, I think I watched the same seduced by Argentina, yeah. <laughs> which is a very interesting. Yeah. There's title. some, yeah, there's some, shall we say uncouth comments, I yeah. think about yeah. our, our friends in Argentina in, yeah, the, in but, that film. But, but something that was like pointed out was that I think certain people felt the producers, the actors, certainly Christophe, Lambert, that it was sort of sabotaged on its release in America, that the American distributors didn't know what to make of it or do with it, and they basically didn't really market it that well. But once people started to see it, they were like, hey, this movie kind of fucking rocks. Yeah, no, no matter what Ryan says, this movie rocks. That's yeah. what everyone said in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that people liked it. So, you know... Usually, the way these things go, right, is that following the initial success, then there is, I think, an impetus to to give the directors more, to give them an opportunity to make their grand opus film. And I think that's definitely where we start with both of these movies. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how safe Zhuavsky felt making it, but it does seem that the impetus for the project was like, here's this blank check. You know, the, the film he had just done with Klaus Kinski was a huge hit, but it's, you know, knowing I, they should have known better. Not, I mean, I'm glad that he still got to shoot, to shoot what he got to shoot, but it's like, you know, what do you think this guy's going to do? Well, it's like Viridiana, you know, it's like you invite Buñuel back to Spain. What did you think was going to happen? You know, right. like it's the exact same scenario where, you know, these states in are like, no, 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 come back. We love you. You obviously, everyone likes you. We like you too. Uh, but not really, you know? <laughs> not, like, not really. Not at all for superficial reasons. And Andy, can you remind me, have you seen On the Silver Globe before? No. No. Mm -mm. So I guess I'm just even curious to ask you right off the bat, experiencing this thing for the first time, I mean, I guess this is a super broad question, but like, how did it feel? I mean, <laughs> uh, there's just a lot of different feelings in watching a movie like this. I mean, first of all, I didn't know how long it was, uh, even in its incomplete form. So when I like pulled it up and I had known a little bit about its troubled production, obviously I would do more research once I got into it, but, but I was like, Two hours and forty-four fucking minutes. I was like, I was like, this isn't a long cinema episode, you know. And I was like, well, this is this is by my count the longest single film we've had yet, isn't oh, it? At two hours is, and forty-four minutes. How long is Stalin? <laughs> Stalin was over two, but it certainly wasn't two forty-four. 
Uh, I mean, maybe Stalin is ten minutes longer. Ten minutes. Is it? Yeah. Stalin was three hours long. Yeah. Two hours and fifty-four. Jesus Christ! I didn't remember that at all. <laughs> I do. Holy fuck! Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's on that's on me then. You know, but yeah. Well, I I I stand corrected. Um, but but no, I mean, like I'm not afraid of 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 that. I mean, uh-huh. you know, um, at all. But I was sort of like. People, like you said, people were saying this movie's missing a fifth, and I was like, it's already two hours and forty-four minutes. So, you know, am I going to feel that? Am I going to to really notice that? And like you mentioned in your intro, like there is this obvious um, built-in element of, you know, from the get-go of, hey, you're going to hear narration. I'm going to talk over the parts that are missing, that were incomplete, that were were not shot, and that that you know doesn't complete my vision. But Broadly speaking, in watching the entire film with all that in mind, I personally liked the way it was constructed. And I, I kind of would be reluctant even to see it fully completed because I actually think the way it ended up being released is fascinating and interesting and I think adds a certain quality to it that I'm sure we can get into a little bit more as we discuss the nitty gritty, but I, I kind of like the moments of of absence or the sort of leaps that we end up taking filled in with reflection, contemporary footage, Zhuovsky's narration. I mean, he's doing the actual narration himself. Mm-hmm. To me, considering that a lot of this film plays with issues of fluid approaches to time and and memory and space i think it makes it a much more like profound kind of experience seeing it this way for for me anyway so so i thought it was stunning i thought it was beautiful i thought it was frustrating Mm -hmm. um aggravating even at times but to me that seems actually like the only way this movie could be. I completely agree. I think that's a great take because I imagine... Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I know. I mean, I feel like I imagine what he would have ended up making would have been really cool, but it does make me even reflect on the act of watching this film is exhausting. Like, we should get that out of the way. You know, his films are feral. They're aggressive. There are people running around screaming. The camera lenses are typically really wide. It's dizzying. It's out of control. And there's something so pleasant and, and beautiful about those interludes when it is just Zhuavsky talking about, and this is what I was thinking about doing next. And he's not screaming at us. At first, I was thinking how funny it would have been had his narration been registered in the same pitch as the rest of the movie. But I felt like I could take a deep breath whenever we were back there. And then the film is so extravagant visually to have these interludes where he's hinting at what might have been, I feel like it allows you to build out so much more of this world and this project. To, like It's encouraging you to use your imagination a little bit more, which is nice because I think in the moments of just literal scenes in the film, there's so much being thrown at your face, it's almost hard to think outside of what is right in front of you. Yeah, yeah it's a much more like 
active viewing experience mm-hmm. uh, for me, you know, of, of, like you said, bringing my imagination in there, of, of trying to picture what he, he might have done, was planning on doing, and in, in some cases almost, you know, like, like a novel where you are picturing it in your head and, and, and you can make it as grand as you want. You could make it as sparse as you want. And I, I think that, to me, made me feel connected to the film like so much more. Mm-hmm. And and I would say, since we're on that sort of subject, I think Highlander 2 also um, is a very active viewing experience, but, but in a very different way, where you're constantly questioning everything you're seeing in relation to the first film. Like you're going, wait, why is this happening? Wait, that's not, you know, like all the retconning that obviously was attempted in this version to sort of like fix is still there. There's certain elements of it that just don't add up. You know, when you connect it to the first film, that's that's sort of like, you know, for better or worse, I mean, right? That's That like gets you more involved in the viewing experience. Yeah, and I think in the case of On the Silver Globe, what makes it so powerful is that it's like doubling the the narrative itself, right? The film is about the creation of civilization from scratch. And so the interludes are about the creation of an artwork from scratch. Mm-hmm. And in the case of, you know, Zhuovsky's civilization uh, in this film, boy, it does not go great. And neither did the film, right? And yeah. so there's a parallel element between the production and the tale uh, that I think, you know, is there, right? And I think, yeah, for for better or worse, the quickening is dealing in the same in the same thing uh, in a certain extent, right? In the sense that it is uh, a film about like gods and and you know the troubles of civilization. I mean, I think there is some funny sort of like science fiction. Uh, sort of connections uh, that can be make, can be made between the two films. Sure, sure. I had seen Highlander 2 before. Um and and I've only seen this version, but right off the bat uh where we have these you know we sort of open in 2024 as you said in your introduction and it's establishing where we've gone from the first film. Um, and, and McLeod immediately we see as an old man and, and that, you know, requires some, some memory on your part of being like, okay, well, yes, at the end of the first film, he technically won and he was then made mortal. Um, so he's an old man and he's at an opera of all operas, of course, because as you said, this is Baroque. He's seeing Wagner's Gutterdammerung, uh, in New York, in quotation marks. <laughs> and um, it looks like Highlander, the product, like the play. Or the yeah, opera. right. <laughs> Which then sends him into his memory palace farther into the past, to thousands of years ago, I guess. Uh, now, in the original version, the savage version by the studio, we were told that this is a different planet, the planet Zeist. And that these are all aliens uh, from this planet who would then come to Earth and and play out their game. But in the Renegade version, apparently, like, the the fixing of that was to say, it's not another planet, it's Earth. Earth. Many, 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 many years in the past. 
But that still doesn't make a whole lot of sense on certain levels to me. First of all, I just got to say, uh, we are, you know, again, we see McLeod when he's very young. And again, we see we see Sean Connery back as Ramirez. Bond alert. Big time Bond alert. Yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> yes, you know, we're, we're, yeah. yes, Bond alert. Sean Connery has finally arrived on the podcast. Uh, but... He's also still, you know, Ramirez, because one of the big rules I think that the producers were given was Sean Connery specifically has to return, even though he was very much killed in the first film. He got uh, three million for six days. Wow. That's a pretty good deal. That's yeah. a nice chunk of change for old yeah. Shawnee. <laughs> and yeah, and, and so it was a you know a producer directed thing in order to get the film made. They had to have Sean Connery in it. And so again, you know, even in pre-production, this film was in trouble, you know, because they're like, all right, how do we now explain Ramirez, right? And really it's just that like uh he can summon him, I guess, when once he gets his groove back. Uh I think that's one of the issues. <laughs> honestly, I think that's one of the issues that that pervades the entire film it's like ryan i we're getting back to your take now like i understand on many levels why this film might be more appealing to you than the first film but but i will say you know in right off right off the get-go here comparing the two like what what i really appreciate about highlander are the rules that the film painstakingly establishes yeah for this this like strange drama to be unfolding in the modern era of just, you know, starting in Highlander where we just are in this like parking garage and two men suddenly whip out swords and just start going at each other in uh-huh. contemporary New York. What the fuck is going on? And the film is basically like creates this really amazing contained kind of, of game that's going to be played out. But like all the rules, <laughs> all the rules, <laughs> like between the first film and the second one get completely like thrown yeah. out you know I mean, but what you're not saying is that the opening of Highlander 2 the quickening is two insane crane shots one of which is a full 360 around an opera <laughs> and i'm just going like this guy's in on the silver globe mode here you know totally. but right i mean i think the the lavish you know mulcahy formalism really really shines in the quickening and mm-hmm. if you're like me, you know, in, into that kind of thing, uh, that will sustain you for this movie on just like a light and shadow level. But right, yeah, when you get into when you get into story and character, uh, boy, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's just a mess because they're reacting not just to the botched job of the film, but to like fans complaining about their, right. their thing because they they did uh, you know they're the original John Wick syndrome. The screenwriters thought everyone wants to know where the immortals came came from we should tell them like they realized very quickly that that was the wrong thing to do the minute you start explaining this fucking world people are gonna get mad and people are gonna get confused you know and that's why i wish that instead of perhaps radically revising the structure and narrative of the film that mulcahy could have used the opportunity in his renegade cut to kind of do the zhuavsky thing like give us some interludes with some wild imagery and him you know tell us a story tell us the story of highlander so he wasn't straining to make the rules make sense with the existing footage but also also maybe talking about his original vision and embellishing it a bit more. I was thinking about 
what both of these films might have looked like had they swapped their strategies because of their production troubles. And I was thinking about it at the beginning of Highlander 2 with that 360 shot at the opera, because again, yes, visually that moment does resemble something from On the Silver Globe. And it's also just amusing because late in On the Silver Globe, one of the missing scenes does take place in a big concert hall. Mistrz Jacek mówią portierzy stając przed nim na baczność. W wielkiej, zrujnowanej sali siedzą, ubrani w takie same stroje jak on, słuchacze. Pochyleni, zapatrzeni, akustyka sali jest czysta. W jej biało oświetlonym końcu stoi Aza i śpiewa. Śpiewa o tym, o czym grają aktorzy, o sobie, o boskim zakochaniu w sobie. Ja, ja, ja. Jacek kurczowo zamyka oczy, cofa się, potyka, wybiega. And they talk about how, you know, the acoustics are quite fine. And <laughs> it's this whole set piece where there's a production. And of course, then watching Highlander 2 right after, I'm seeing this concert hall and I'm thinking, this is the missing footage from On the Silver Globe, mm-hmm. you know. And it, and some of those images, because they were just so remarkable, those matte paintings they were using in Highlander, to see some of that stuff in On the Silver Globe could have been kind of neat. But I mean, again, the alien quality of 1980s Warsaw, I think, does also really work to its advantage. Because I should note, too, the third book in the trilogy that he he really almost kind of doesn't adapt the third one. The third one is about lunar colonists in the 27th century, so people who have lived on the moon for a significant amount of time returning to Earth and then exploring Earth. So he kind of does that a little bit with his new version by having it exploring Warsaw in the 80s. But it does, like, I still can't get it out of my head, just the funny contradiction between those images and what he's describing. Because, again, clearly this production was very expensive and these costumes are so lavish. But the scenes that are missing when he's describing them, all I was thinking about was, wow, Andre, that sounds really expensive. (laughs) Because it seems like they were some of the centerpiece special effects that were missing, like big ships crashing, huge... Battle scenes. Battle scenes, control centers where people have all these monitors and working on all this tech. That does feel like that's a lot of what was missing. In spite of that, though, I have to say again, if if, if you're you're comparing both of the films and um, giving credit where major credit is due these are two of two absolute feasts for production design yes uh, the production design of both of these films Crazy. uh have images that are now seared into my uh my memory and imagination for um their quality their texture their uniqueness and and i would say i think again one thing that sort of links them is that both of them in their depictions of the future are also relying heavily on images from our past history. Yes. That there's this, this um, really great choice to sort of like, uh, as we've talked about previously on this podcast, you know, sci-fi films that, that rely on the space of the world that we already exist in to, you know, uh, make it uncanny to perhaps get around production issues, budgetary issues, but both of these films do it in in truly, truly uh, grand and glorious ways, I think. Yeah, I kept thinking about how just the way it references past art. There's a moment in On the Silver Globe getting way ahead of ourselves here because I haven't even talked about the Shurns, which Whoa, are these like... On. 
<laughs> these like humanoid birds that are telepathic and you're talking about production design those costumes we should all be shurns for halloween next year oh, i think no that doubt. would be pretty good yeah. expensive costume yeah probably a three thousand dollar cost yeah especially because if we want to do the full thing where their heads light up and we put like some blinking lights in there but one of the missing sequences late in the film is when they say he wanders a hall looking at all this artwork from a lost civilization of the Shurns. And I would have loved, I wonder if this exists anywhere, like Juwowski's concept art of what those, the Shurn classical paintings would have looked like in this alien planet, you know? It's almost too much for the brain to imagine if it, c it could be so detached from the types of art that you're talking about, Andy, that both of these films are referencing, like Baroque styles and other types of Christian imagery, of course, a ton in On the Silver Globe. You know what I, I experienced when watching it, though, to that end, was this almost, because I'm a big fan of Lovecraft, uh -huh. uh, this almost like Lovecraft Haftian approach where where in his like cosmic horror uh things are like barely described yeah and, and it's left to our as the reader like it's left to our imagination to conjure up you know sanity breaking horror or things outside of our 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 understanding and i i felt like in a in a certain way this was almost lovecraftian by doing that and obviously there's reasons you know why it's too expensive but like that moment of like just describing the shern's art like this is a species so different from from anything we can we, we've had any kind of understanding of mm -hmm. in natural history. You know? <laughs> Look, if human beings feel like aliens in most of his movies, then what do you think aliens <laughs> feel like in his movies? Yeah. Because like, yeah, they're these like insane looking bird humanoids that are telepathically having arguments about philosophy yeah. with astronauts. Like, and, and they look like they were burnt, you know, they look like they were lit on fire or something yeah. like these charcoal monsters. The, the, the closer you looked, like the more like unsettling they, they <laughs> were, you know, because they look like cheap knockoff, like you know, schlock monsters at first, right? But they do not feel that and, way at all. And no. actually, what's even kind of funny about that is Merrick, the 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 astronaut who arrives later, mm -hmm. you know, during this big conflict with the yeah, Shurns, he calls him out when he first sees them. He's like, "That's what you guys are afraid of. They're ridiculous looking, like." <laughs> This is not a big fucking deal here. Yeah. <laughs> but even the closer that he gets to them, the more he encounters them, the more upsetting and and um, um, terrifying mm -hmm. and disgusting they become. In the same way that, that the closer we, as an audience, see them, uh, it's it's a very similar kind of... <laughs> it's a really kind of similar process there. But yeah, you know, I think that's it. It's It's like... What would their art be? Try and imagine it. You can't, right? And, right. and that's kind of awesome to me that we don't see it, you know, mm -hmm. that we don't get a glimpse into it. That's true. Because in my mind, I'm, I'm like going, you know, uh, would we even classify it as art if we actually saw it? You know, we'd be like, that's not, what is that? Right. <laughs> you know? We, we would that's... be like Sean Connery in The Quickening when he sees uh, um, McLeod's like modernist sculpture. He says, that's a sculpture. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's really better you're not informed of what yeah. it actually like is. But also, Marsh, to your point about, you know, and I think Ryan about Zhuovsky and, you know, where people are aliens and, and stuff like that. Also, on a similar, uh, on a different note, I should say that that he does make the aliens 
more human than a lot of the quote humans we encounter ultimately. And again, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here because that's sort of the journey Mm -hmm. that, that Marek especially is, is, is going to go on, but that the Shurn at first are this thing that is, is so different from us biologically. uh, And yet philosophically, intellectually, perhaps more human than human. Yeah, because ultimately, you know, he Zhivovsky is dealing with like the big themes, animals <laughs> with a capital B, you know, yeah, and T, yeah, like what is a human? What is an animal? What is the difference? Like these very primal and basic questions, and that goes back to <laughs> what you cited about you know psychology being fascism. I mean, I think. What he's trying to do here is, yeah, go back into the imagined past in in his future uh, and go like, yeah, let's let's look at humans before the Enlightenment, before even Greek flower, you know. Greek philosophy is what he's really going back to, like in this movie. Uh, again, the the capital B, capital T, uh, big themes, and so when the Shern like when the existence of them is implied, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's like flying birds. They have a whole city. And by the time you see them, it's like, well, they can't fly anymore. And it's like, did they, could they ever have, have flown, you know, Mm -hmm. like my, my brain was firing off and like filling in all these gaps of like this faraway city where there's all these flying birds who have arts. And then they just devour you telepathically. It's a lot to, go around and then it is and that's why it's also it's weird it's so contradictory because there are so many elements of the gaps that are missing that are so open-ended and yet sometimes the scenes themselves feel more open-ended than the ellipses because when juovsky is describing the scenes that are missing they follow this pattern of cause and effect and narrative clarity that the rest of the film does not have even a little bit of. I mean, the, the those little gaps are honestly moments where you can catch up and actually realize what's going on and who some of these people yeah. are, yeah. you know? Yeah, actually a lot of, the, I did notice that a lot of the gaps, the the like leaps, the, the, the moments of like, you know, narrative interlude were kind of like transitionary uh, like yeah. scenes you know a lot of them would be like and then they go here and and they discover this or in the beginning you know when we get this whole sort of like opening section of of the the three astronauts well there's actually more i think it's like five total yeah. that crash land on this planet we go through their whole journey of of establishing the species of populating this this space uh there's just then this cut to 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 Zhuavsky being like, yeah, and then the astronauts watched the footage, and then they had this horrible reaction to it, where they were like, oh fuck, I'm questioning everything now. <laughs> and I think one of them is like, it says like he's incredibly sad, and he he no longer knows who he is, and then it moves on to the next section, and I thought that was like beautiful because yeah, it's like if we had seen them watch the footage and have that reaction. You know, it accomplishes the exact yeah, same they're thing. They're us, by the way, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and like that's it. I mean, like you would watch that and you'd be devastated by it. Now on to the next section where Merrick shows up. Like, of course, they're now going to send somebody to verify this footage. And and you know, later in the film, when they're crossing the sea, he then has an interlude where this is what happens when they cross to the ocean, and it's summed up in less than a minute. And mm-hmm. and that's 
kind of perfect on a certain level because it does just kind of in an almost more economic way get us to his bigger moments you know like the battle scene yes it's big it's lavish it would be cool to watch but ultimately you could just simply say like was it aldrich and then they took the town yeah. right <laughs> it's like yeah and that would have been 15 days on we set shot, we shot 12 days on that sentence or whatever <laughs> right. you know? yeah, like, it's, it's like a very yeah. similar thing going on here with Zhuovsky, where yes we are maybe losing some of the 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 grandeur and production design and stunt work but it's simply like a, a thing to get us to what's happened next, which is the bigger thematic material again. And that's why some of those transition moments in Highlander are so funny, because we don't have those poetic interludes. The one that first comes to mind, of course, is when Christopher Lambert, McLeod, turns from an old man into a younger man because of this huge battle with also like bird-like creatures. They're kind of Shern-esque. Yeah, they're steampunk Shern. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. That's a good they're way just to put like it. Like Porcupine-esque. Yeah. The Shern might be a little bit more like pigeons, but, yeah. but these are like porcupine. <laughs> but he, like when these dudes arrive to fight McLeod and he's an old man, he he teams up with Virginia Madsen. Uh, what's her character's name? Uh, Louise Marcus. Louise Marcus, who's sort of like an eco-terrorist. Yeah, because... she's an anti-shield terrorist because she thinks the shield is a big lie. Yeah, we should probably like yeah, explain yeah. that a little bit, you know? <laughs> because the the opening like titles, which are, again, trying to sort of like reset things for everybody, like fill everybody in on like where we are. For all those people who might not have seen Highlander, we're also then told that there was was, you know, basically the ozone layers falling apart, devastating radiation has been mm-hmm. just just pounding the globe, and Connor McLeod, of all people, comes up with the, you know, design for a an electromagnetic shield, which is now going to cover the entire planet, protect us from radiation, and it's been 25 years that humans have been living underneath this. But this is where Madsen's character comes in, uh, there are those who think it's all a lie, right? Yeah. And that the ozone layer has repaired itself, and, and now it's just a scam by the TSC, the Shield Corporation, <laughs> yeah. run by John C. McGinley, the world's biggest weasel. Yes, the and, corporation. Yeah, so that's sort of like what's what's going on in this dystopian sort of like Blade Runner-esque hell, hell hole. Yeah. Right. Where humans have basically just given up. There's no sun. You yeah, know? no blue skies the sky is just this ugly shield so yeah i guess to, to then to get back to just this little idea that i had about you know when he is an old man and he briefly teams up with this eco-terrorist when there's the threat of these porcupine steampunk shern dudes that were sent uh by michael ironside and whatever other dimension he's from i don't totally understand from the that. past oh right okay the past <laughs> so he sends them see i just think an image and rhyme with this film you know and so he he sends those porcupine men and so mcleod's with virginia madsen and <laughs> when he sees the threat he puts her in a dumpster yeah um and he's like just get in here and he stuffs her in a dumpster and then he fights them and it's really cool and he arrives like out of the smoke like born anew like a phoenix there's this explosion uh and there's all this smoke and he comes out and he's a young man yeah and immediately virginia madsen 
this was my whole point about these like weird transitionary moments. She just comes out of the dumpster and just starts fucking him on the street. Yes. This man that she had just met, they like go up against the wall and they bone out there because she can't believe how good looking yeah. this man who was pr- previously he just had in to his eighties. Decapitate 80s. two guys, two porcupine and, men. And now yeah. he's hot again. <laughs> and I guess if you're like an eco terrorist, that might be something that you know get you going, like seeing something that exciting. Well, but that is a good point that the, the, the decrepit 70 year old man is going to defend the accomplished eco-terrorist commando. (laughs) You know, she has nothing to possibly contribute to. I mean, a laughably like old, you know, performance by Christopher Lambert. His voice is so funny. The voice is incredible. It's just like this the whole time, you know? Hey, I asked you a question. Are you McLeod? Yes, I am. Great. I always wanted to meet the guy that turned the world to shit. Well, he saved our lives if you ask me. I'm not asking you. Okay. What do you want? Did you ever think about that before you covered the sky with that puke? Who are you? Me? I'm nobody, all right? I work all day and my life stinks and it's your goddamn fault, you old bastard. Don't turn your back on me. There are some people in this world who know when to stop and some people who don't. Which kind are you? I honestly wish he I'll was old. I'll protect you getting the dumpster. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? I truly, like, not a joke, wish he was old for the whole movie and did that voice the whole time but like still had his prowess mm-hmm. yeah and and that's funny too because that whole thing of them like you know the fucking in the street like animals from on the silver globe or whatever uh it it then transitions to scotland where uh sean connery materializes in the middle of a production of hamlet and does some like key improvising uh as he's uh, brought back from the dead i mean such a again such a strange film but i was thinking on this note there's a lot of connections between like mythology and performance specifically uh especially in on the silver globe where not only as this civilization like develops you know the original astronauts become gods martha martha she's you know basically the, the creator of all life and mm-hmm. and Yerzy is considered a demigod even as he's living amongst uh you know this exponentially growing population yeah. but one of the first things that also happens is people are like i'm an actor mm-hmm. and that's like a class of person in this like new society that's being created these people who are like i'm playing martha i'm playing peter i'm playing you yerzy i'm playing you i'm the actor and (laughs) it's like it's crazy of course you know and that persists throughout these sort of like stock actor uh sort of figures in their society and then there's also like all these lavish performances uh in highlander mm-hmm. uh in in kind of a similar way where wagner looks like highlander yeah, you know? yeah. oh yeah i gotta go back to uh, that that the the whole like 
you know, arrival and inclusion of Sean Connery in this film. Cause like, look, many people over the years have, have obviously like made jokes about even the first Highlander, how you have a, a, like a French guy or a Swiss guy and Christopher Lambert, who was, you know, didn't even speak English. I think when they, they cast him for Highlander playing a Scotsman and then Sean Connery, the biggest Scotsman of all time playing not just a Spaniard, but as we discover an Egyptian Spaniard. And as he corrects people, actually, my name's Ramirez, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like, and, 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 but you know, like that's obviously like funny right off the bat in Highlander. But in this one, what's kind of crazy about it when they bring him back, they, they like lean into his Scottishness, the fact that Sean Connery's a Scotsman. So he, he appears in Glencoe, Scotland, because that's where he was, he was killed in the first film. But now, like every time he's on screen, they're playing bagpipes. Yeah. They're playing like Scottish music. He goes to a Scottish tailor and there's this elaborate sequence where he's basically just becoming like the ultimate Scotsman again. Like... It's it's like insane. Like in this time, yeah. Connor McLeod's Scottishness is like completely absent. Uh, you know, I'm Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. None of that <laughs> shit. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of very fluid performance of nationality. See, like, well, my take with Highlander to the Quickening, as it relates to Sean Connery, is that he's no longer playing Ramirez, but that he is playing Sean Bond. Connery. Oh, but I was gonna say yeah. Sean Connery, but <laughs> because yeah. like he's like Ramirez the is a cover. Yeah, yeah, his yeah. his approach to seducing women throughout the whole film are all just like shitty James Bond one-liners oh, from yeah. his 60s era. You know, and he's getting the nice clothes, he's leaning into the Scottish Bond, you know. Yeah. It feels like this redemption moment of him being like I still got it. I still have the suave Bond in me. Yeah. He doesn't he doesn't go he doesn't try to find like a Spanish tailor. He goes to like a Scottish tailor of right. all things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's Ramirez. Because then, yeah, then he flies on a plane, uh, which is, you know, because there's like, a, it seems like there's a couple scenes where it's trying to make jokes about the time travel stuff. Yes. Like we've got Oh, yeah, Sean but the Connery. jokes are, are kind of like <laughs> incomprehensible. Like the, the logic, again, the rules, you know? Yeah. Because like you said, when he first appears in Glencoe, Scotland, you know, very quickly, he's just like, I have no idea what's going on. Like, he's like, I'm from, you know, the 1500s or whatever. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even know who Shakespeare is because Shakespeare wasn't even a big star when he was alive. So, but the problem is that Katana, Michael Ironside's character, he seems to know everything about the future. Like, he's coming from the past. He watches it on television. Well, and maybe that's part of it. He has a video feed of the future or something. But (laughs) but when he arrives, he kind of, like, easily gets around. He understands everything. He makes a lot of, like, cultural references and jokes that only a person of that time would understand. Like, he, there's this whole crazy sequence of him, like, uh, hijacking a subway train oh, and, yeah. and and becoming the conductor of it. Music he's video. like, yeah, and he's like making cracks about. It. And don't get me wrong, it's an insane sequence. Visually. People are like levitating in the subway They're car. They're flying They're around so like fast. there's a guy. They cut to a guy who's like eyes are bulging out of his head. There's <laughs> yeah. heavy metal music suddenly just like <laughs> going nuts on the soundtrack. But he's like cracking jokes like last stop, and it's like only someone of that. Arrow would understand. Well, here's these the best references. part, though. Think about it this way: in the original script, he's simply from another planet. 
but then the explanation being that he's just watching the video feed of another planet. Like, yeah. he knows, <laughs> knows everything about their culture. It's his uh, favorite yeah. TV show, you know, and he's just embracing the culture from Earth yeah. so yeah. he can, TV, like... Dude. Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe that's I mine. think it still works, because we see him <laughs> watching it even in his other time zone. Yes. Like, time zone's a funny way. Like, his other time world, you know. He's watching Earth on TV from the future. So, again, I think he's just... A, from the past. <laughs> Well, the Earth is from the future in this situation. He's from the past. Yes. Yes. But he's a big fan, is, yeah, my, is, yeah. is my take. I will oh, say, yeah. too, I you know, one thing I did not remember from On the Silver Globe, uh, from seeing it on the shitty DVD from many, many years ago, was some of those moments with the heavy metal music. Or at least, maybe not quite heavy metal, but like rock music. hard rock music with yeah. guitars. That was really cool. And we even like laughed about it when we watched it, how it ends with this really cool synth score. And we were like, where was this the whole time? Yeah, you music's know? all over the place. It I is. Love it. Yeah, it feels like there almost wasn't, I mean, I guess I don't want to say there wasn't a strategy, but it's as if the strategy was like how many different types of music can we throw at this thing to make you feel uneasy when sure. the music hit. Well, I think it drop. also like builds along with the story, right? Like the music yeah. changes and the music progresses as the, the society progresses. I mean, I think... Like Goodfellas. Yeah, exactly <laughs> like Goodfellas, right? Uh, I think one of the, of course, most impressive things about Silver Globe is simply the costumes and the imagination that went into the evolution of the costumes because mm-hmm. again when you're starting with a, a civilization that's three people and then more and more and more and we just watch it grow it's like the mutations from one thing to the next like there's continuity in the designs and in the costumes uh over the years that then like subtly change and it's just like really fascinating to track uh i mean like it's fascinating to track any like all of this progress uh over the many time jumps because there's like radical time jumps in Silver Globe where you can just go like, well, now there's just a hundred more people. Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like there's no way for me to understand it without, you know, studying it specifically, but it is seemingly as though there was an intense logic and mapping of the way that the costumes had evolved over time. Like, it seemed like there were multiple considerations of how their culture developed, the types of things that were available to them as they were putting together these costumes, because it just doesn't feel like it's riffing on anything based on historical outfits like right. on Earth. It seems like utterly original right. in all of its conception. Which is great because I feel like it skirts what so many science fiction films do so poorly, presenting a developing culture as the kind of typically racist idea of the savages, you know, and like what that looks like. This film still has some of those tropes where it seems like the majority of what this culture does on a day-to-day basis is collect outside in the the mud and just look at each other very sinisterly while having like a leader and just kind of waiting for them to tell them what to do well like yeah i mean i guess we should establish that like we see some details of the first i guess like three generations basically of thomas's uh so <laughs> thomas is was the injured astronaut who was the father of the first child on this planet and 
then there's, you know, subsequent Thomases that are <laughs> that are succeeded through the generations. And it's so sad how quickly it all goes bad by like the third Thomas. They've completely like done away with any learning or language skills, and they've reverted completely back to just like constant barbarism and mm-hmm. like violence and fucking and rolling around in the mud. However, then of course, t- you know, Timothy the Third is the one who gets like the expansionist idea. Well, and th- this is also, I think, where the the very heavy kind of existential like dread and doom of Zhuavsky comes in because, you know, right in the start when, when the astronauts crash land on the planet and, you know, they realize like, okay, well, this is, this is it. Like we're, we're here now. Uh, One character, uh, Pyotr, like he quickly sees possibility. He quickly sees like the opportunity to, to, to start fresh and you know he sort of like is spinning around in a very kind of like manic state of like yeah this is great and and I can see it all I can see us like you know this is an opportunity to do things right to do things better pamiętasz człowieka rodzącego się ojciec obdarza siemionami nasionami pełnymi wszystkich możliwości to, co każdy wypielęgnuje, zobaczy, jak wzrasta w nim i przynosi mu owoce. Jeśli roślinne, będzie rośliną, a jeśli zmysłowe, będzie zwierzęciem. Jeśli racjonalne, istota jego stanie się czymś niebiańskim. Jeśli wreszcie intelektualne, będzie aniołem albo synem człowieka. <laughs> and Jersey is is very like very pessimistic. Jersey's like it's all going to go bad. It's going to go bad again. That seems to be what happens to all societies. And his character who actually of the original astronauts lives the longest is is forced to face that to 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 see that progress and then regression and and kind of confirm his worst feelings about humanity about humans about societies and about himself because he posits himself as an impassioned observer because he takes on the role of like filmographer the whole first third of the film is theoretically from his camera on his spacesuit right and so he even wrestles with that being like damn i should have like chipped in or like you know like helped instead of just being like oh, i'm just gonna document it as this like cold neutral observer, yeah this yeah. cold neutral observer and he like everyone else who's ever lived learns ain't no such thing you know mm-hmm. he is very reluctant to seize power to to have that kind of thirst for leading like Piotr does and that ultimately is why even uh, these like subsequent Thomases come to reject him outright because of that, because they say, if you are this God, you have not helped us at all. You have not led us. You have not told us what's right, what's wrong. You haven't given us a code to follow. You've left us to our own designs. And he does even see then that failure of like, well, yeah, maybe I should have intervened instead of 
you know, going and living like a hermit up on this mountain by myself. But like, I think this is where a lot of that political, you know, ultimately what would get this film derailed, ultimately would get, would get this film <laughs> shut down is it's, ultimate condemnation of authority of leadership of society sort of as a whole you know it is so filled especially in those shouty moments and there's a lot of shouty moments of characters more or less just saying it's all doomed to fail no matter what we do no matter what we try if we go left we're gonna fuck up if we go right we're gonna fuck up if we intervene too much we're going to become a despot if we don't intervene at all we're going to be told that we're we're cruel and and cold and lifeless and dispassionate and that sort of thing but like this is like the heaviest part of the movie is, is just every character coming to the realization that no matter what they do, it's ultimately wrong. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, and cause it's funny looking back at all the quotes I even wrote down of what Yerzy was saying in the front half as he's wrestling with that inside him, because he doesn't necessarily, I mean, of course he does kind of reject the moniker of demigod uh, when it seems like that's being put on him, but also he doesn't reject that much because initially when he takes on the role of videographer and he has Marta and Piotr like abandon their cameras because they also had cameras attached to their suit. He mentions, like, I've fused their memories with mine, that I am sort of going to be someone who documents this from all of our perspective. But then that ends up not being the case of what ends up happening, and then he talks about the nature of freedom. He's like, I only believe in a perfect freedom, yours, mine, and ours. And then he realizes that his filmmaking might not necessarily, like his style of documenting that might not be that type of freedom. And then even later... When he doesn't want to be a god, he then kind of soliloquizes on the reasons why we might need faith, because he says there's no thought without faith, or that there's no faith without thought, like that sort of thing. He's like kind of wrestling back and forth with that. And of course, then by the end, he's a man who doesn't really do action. You know, he's stuck wrestling with these ideas so that by the time Merrick arrives, he's like, dear God, <laughs> you know, look at this underground civilization that's developed here, which is another cool thing in this film, the like underground temple. Yeah, because after, yeah, after the encounter with the Shern, the humans go completely underground and then they're like caked in mud and all their faces are green. And again, we're, we're back to uh, the cave. We're back to Plato. We're right. back to the origins of people. We're back to fascism, you know, mm -hmm. like. Sure. All these charismatic the Cold leaders. War. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really. I mean, like, that's, I think, why in the mind of the, the, the Wilhelmini, was that his name? The, yeah. The, the Polish film commissioner, you know, guy, you know, why he would jump in. Because it's like, okay, you can start to see this idea of, like, is this the Soviet Union, right? It was like these astronauts suddenly crashing, you know, in the rubble of you know, whatever going, Hey, starting a totally new society from the ground up, like the, the, the project of the Soviet union, and it's going to be better and it's going to be equal. And we're, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to fix all the mistakes we made because that's part of what excites Piotr is being like, 
we can do it. We can do it better. We can do it right this time. Uh, and yet, ultimately, what does it lead to? This this sort of like, yeah, people huddling in bunkers, uh, you know, a, a stalemate. Uh, so the Shern or the U.S. in this uh, allegory? Sure, yeah, maybe, right? I mean, like, uh. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of it from his perspective, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, they're across an ocean and, and... And they're doing psychological warfare on the population constantly? Sure, uh. and not only that, but, like, they are described for these, like, at, at the point where the humans are in this in this world as being more advanced as, yeah. as having these lavish cities and, 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 and you wouldn't believe all that they have over there across the ocean. And here we are. Yeah. Rolling around in the goddamn mud or whatever. And so that, that like tempts and terrifies them at the same time. But of course, you know, none of these people see that world. They don't actually get to go over there until Merrick leads that, that the crusade second. Yeah. Crusade. All they have is like the word of some guy who, who came back from the first disastrous expedition and is again, going back to faith. Is that enough? Well, for some, maybe for others, not enough. It's funny then comparing these two films with their targets, thinking about how subversive on the silver globe was in its allegories, especially with the cave, as we've detailed a bit here. And then thinking about in Highlander to the quickening, how its main focus are, you know, evil global corporations. And I actually think the scene when Michael Ironside arrives in the, you know, I don't want to call it the like, you know, the boardroom, but like this huge, lavish, you know, kind of heavy metal corporate hallway that they're all collected in a table all yeah. the all the partners looks of like this. the lobby of a nice hotel it does it does and which it probably was <laughs> yeah and mcginley's there you know leading this board meeting of all of these partners that are on the is it the shield corporation right and ironside shows up and says like hi excuse me but i do believe that you'll find a custom party is in another building this happens to be a meeting, and no one interrupts the meeting of the corporation. The corporation. What luck. You see, I've come to join the corporation. And here you all are. Where do I sign up? Oh, I think I've had enough of you. Goodbye, Tilla. <laughs> And I think it's funny that it's presented in such a matter-of-fact way that McGinley's way of handling this is sending one of his fellow board members to just open fire on Michael yeah. Ironside. It's like, fuck this guy. Like, get him shoot out of him here. Shoot him right now. In the shareholders meeting. Yes. It's like, just shoot him dead. And he does, but... He's an immortal. But he's an immortal. So Michael Ironside gets back up after being bloodied and having his chest all shot up. And then when he attacks one of these uh, dudes... At first, you almost think he's going to like rip his head in half because he shoves his fingers in his mouth and starts like tugging at his teeth. Oh yeah! And we get some crazy, you know, like kind of goopy sound effects where it sounds like it's stretching to the yeah. point of just completely like, tearing in half. Yeah, like breaking a chicken bone or something. Exactly. He ends up, it seems like, just kind of twisting the guy's neck. But it is, you know, a funny representation of them. Obviously, are terrified of him, so they accept him into their inner circle. But it does also seem like McGinley's a bit impressed. I was fucking impressed. I wrote in my notes, you should be able to just walk into a corporate boardroom like this. 
Yeah. <laughs> and just be, you know, and just be like, I'm the shareholder now. You know, uh, I was like really impressed with with that because again, I think in that moment that you're referring to, Ryan, where the goon just like opens fire, uh, the implication there being like, yeah, that is what they do. Like they, yeah. they kill people to to extract or or to whatever get their their product out there. Um, and that's where like the 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 like eco terrorism comes comes in because the Shield Corporation is desperate to maintain their monopoly literally global on the globe monopoly. yeah of this of this shield which they are charging increasingly like elaborate fees to the various nations around the world to to you know maintain protected by that sort of thing you yeah. know you know from a business standpoint like i get it because they're sort of the, the shield corporation like this is it we've got guaranteed income here but but i also got to sort of wonder it's like well yeah but like couldn't you also find other ways to make money other than this? But like, I guess that's not really the point, you know, like if it did come down, like wouldn't there be a lot of money for you to start rebuilding the planet in other ways? Like everybody would make money on that, you know, fixing up the opera hall jobs for everyone, infrastructure deals, you know, it's but true. But you have to think about like this shield literally being totally global by definition and that everyone is relying on them for maintaining it. So now, the amount of money that probably goes into it. Since we're know. on the subject though, I, I kind of got to like, this was in my mind a little bit. I, I was sort of trying to pick at this a little bit, which is like, especially in 2022, does this have kind of like a weird take on like climate change? If you kind of think about it, because like, do you get what I'm saying? Yes, I was thinking about this too. Yeah, the the idea that this film is almost like anti climate change yeah. in general, saying that like we shouldn't be funding the science towards this, like protecting our yeah, the planet's planet. gonna heal itself. It's gonna take care <laughs> of it on its own if we just give it some time. Yeah, yeah. These things come and go, but what we don't need is well, yeah, it actually. <laughs> it, totally. Although, well, wouldn't the shield be protecting the ozone layer from us? Therefore, it repair like. Yeah, I think that's still the idea, but I couldn't help but shake it that the goal of this film ultimately yeah, was like, like it's a psyop. Yeah, like, like no this one is, at any point when they're going even into the past of being like you know what we see this like crazy like infirmary where there's just like hundreds of hospital beds of people who've been poisoned by the sun, uh -huh. and and like they're constantly saying like the sun attacked us, like the sun started to to kill people but there isn't then this discussion of like systemically we really fucked up did we all learn from this experience no it's just sort of like no. look it's healed itself you know it's fine <laughs> which kind of led me to even like you know some of Mulcahy's other films and you know as I mentioned to you both I, I'd watched Razorback before this film and I noticed even in Razorback there's a weird almost like anti-conservationist approach there as That's well true, yeah but the film ultimately kind of says like it's a good thing we're out here just blasting all these wild beasts, right? Like, so maybe Mulcahy, I mean, I don't know, you know, yeah. maybe there's something going well, on here. You gotta you know, wonder. Australia. You know, <laughs> yeah. Kind of, yeah. A, kind of a, yeah, right-wing place. Yeah, know? perhaps, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, you got to wonder what happened to Earth in On the Silver Globe because it's extremely vague as to how Earth ended up the way it is, you know. Yeah, that's something we haven't talked about because Earth, uh, talk about there's the tropes of the the tribal nations, Ryan, where uh, on present day Earth, it's also a dystopia and there are like... uh, uh, a tribe of like traveling herdsmen who interact with the astronauts and even the opening scene of the film is them like bringing this transmitter that's fallen from the sky yeah. that has Jersey's recording on it. Uh, and we do get a lot of that interaction as well. But again, no context for uh, what's transpired. But that's also part, I think, of like Merrick and, and all of them being like our planet was shit. Like, yeah. they, right. you know going to the other planet but i think again it 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 gets to the the like ultimate like cyclical nature that he's exploring of like nations of civilizations of rising and falling of growth and decline of progress and and regus evolution devolution whatever you want to say because like I, i really like latched onto that moment when the astronauts watched the footage of the first part of the, the film. The new world. Right, the new world. And like he says in his narration, like they were really upset. And one of them was like crying and, and was like really upset. And 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 the other guy's like, why, why? And he's like, I don't know who I am now. And like for me, it was like that idea of just being like, yes, here we are in this advanced civilization. And that feeling that everything you knew about your species, your evolution, your history is all out of perhaps even someone else's like failure. You know, basically like disbelieving all of your history, Uh disbelieving science, disbelieving everything. Or even more broadly, this idea that this is within us, that we are so used to the systems that we have set up and that's how we've maintained our quote unquote status quo. But look at us now in a new place starting a new civilization and this is the natural chain of events is this inside us is this who we are as human beings only to just you know lift up gods and tear it all down again here we are sending these things out thinking like like look at all this stuff that we're building and and again in this like cycle of like birth and death and rebirth you know why so many characters in this film come to the realization that like what does any of it fucking matter? Like, that's what so many people seem to sort of realize that, like, you know, was Christ just simply, like, this this total fuck-up, you know? Like, it wasn't some messiah and hero, that he was, like, a guy that just totally, like, screwed up, you know, that had an idea and, like, well, look, look where that led, you know? Because it almost seems like one of the main questions of the film is, like, outside of the soul, even just literally, what is inside us? What are we made of? Why do we do what we do? Because there's even that horrifying cannibal holocaust-esque sequence where they've got everybody stuck up in the air on these giant poles to see their entrails like exiting out from beneath them one of these dudes because there's probably like 20 of them strung up on these poles is still alive enough to direct address the camera and say like this is what's within me like i've been impaled and stuck up here and this is all i am this is all that's left these entrails like witness this And it almost seems like so much of the film then becomes preoccupied with both metaphorically what's inside us and literally just what's inside us. What are we? Are we animal? Are we man? You know, what good is any of this? Are we inherently unhappy that we're just going to continue to make gods 
take it all down again because obviously you know t- getting a little ahead of ourselves but the ending of the film this messiah is ultimately rejected the priests start to doubt merrick and they think well this guy could just be from wherever like this isn't our messiah yeah, he's just some guy he's yeah. just some guy yeah. <laughs> again he's not a god he's a fucking like astronaut going through a bad breakup yeah he's a, he's a <laughs> cucked astronaut yeah I mean, that's what I mean. Like, it's like this, this, when that guy's like, I don't know who the fuck I am anymore. It's like, you know, things we have been told by people who came before us, like, again, going back to your thing about faith and and all this shit, it's like, we're just supposed to believe these guys? Like, well, that's that's the, and that's the Shern's point too, is because he, there's, when there's a great moment where like, you know, they capture like the, the Shern leader or one of the Shern's and they've got him like tied up in the caves and Merrick confronts him for the first time. And that's, you know, the, the conversations a lot of the time in this film are, are kind of hard to follow, but like the, the general gist of it is the Shern just being like, you idiot. Like you think you're not an animal. Yeah. Like that's basically it. Like the Shern says, I'm consistent. You're not. Yeah. Right. And it's because of the beliefs they, they create, the beliefs in, in science, the beliefs in gods, the, all these other things where they're deluding themselves. And that's the Shern who's just like, obliterate yourself. Like you don't exist. You're just matter, you know? Yeah. Like who's advanced now? You know? Like that whole interrogation is fucking insane. Oh, yeah. Because Merrick himself. You know, and again, I uh, apologies to our listeners if if a lot of this sounds incomprehensible because, like, <laughs> really, this movie is is all over the place, and I mean that in, in the best way possible. But like, Merrick goes through a similar journey because when he first arrives, he's once again trying to act just simply as this sort of like observer. Like, I'm yeah. here to just do a fact finding mission. Like, you know, that thing that we got. Like, I'm here to just check up on everything. And he he tries to distance himself, but then he starts to 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 believe it. He starts to drink the Kool-Aid, you know, the, the from the salt mine or wherever they're all <laughs> huddling. And he starts to like go take advantage of that and take advantage of the fact that these people do view him as a god. And again, not just as like, a, a, you know, astronaut second class or whatever the hell he is, you know, like a glorified errand boy, basically. I like to think that that turning point for him is, so when we first see him, he's there, they throw like a parade for him. He's like the Messiah and they have this sort of parade float that's decorated with all these flowers. But then a battle starts on the beach and Merrick gets whacked in the head um, with a blade. And so he's got this, this nasty head wound for a chunk of the film. And again, this is when he's still like, I'm just an observer. I'm pretty resistant. But I like to think the moment that he decided like maybe this god thing like might not be so bad at all is when one of those babes like runs up to him and she takes her hair and she rubs it all over his wound and then she wipes her face with the blood that her hair had soaked up Mm -hmm. and he feels that moment of being worshipped and he's like oh you know yeah not so bad i'm getting cucked at home like (laughs) you know maybe this will work out for me (laughs) yeah because he does basically like find a new girlfriend he does (laughs) he does yeah and you know to your point andy about like the earth shattering moment um when when Merrick sees the Shern for the first time, there's a there's an interlude, you know, a, a Poland Warsaw interlude, and it says, "The faith is coming to an end. 
now reality is beginning. And that, like, in the context of this civilization's growth, like, it was all pretend and fun and games until you discovered the fucking Shurn. And then you realized you were nothing, you know? And that's, like, ultimately the journey Merrick goes through, which is, like, this descent into into madness. And we even do, uh, do see some combat, although obviously a bunch of it got cut out and other scenes got cut out. There's some some very thrilling like little skirmishes and battles they in got, the like, movie. Fireworks! They're like firing <laughs> Roman candles at each other. It's really yeah. sick. Yeah. Well, he 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 brings them the miracle of gunpowder. Yes. Right. You know? See, because I think that's part of it for Merrick Marsh, as you pointed out, that like when you know with the knowledge that he has of the video footage he's seen, right? So when they send this other expedition back. He goes in with this knowledge of like, well, these are all just they're from they're from these idiot astronauts who crashed before. Like they're just people like us. But the discovery of the Sherns is when for him he is like, wait, there's even more than we previously thought. And if they're Shern, then there's so many other things. And if they're more advanced than us, then again, like we're the fail sons of the universe or something like that. Like we built these these huddled mud people. And they, they're on next level shit over there. Like, we got to go see that. And not only that, but, but we've got to attempt to, to, to take it over, to take control of it, to, to overpower it somehow. And, and he wants something from them. I don't think it's ever fully clear, but maybe that's, that's simply it. He wants to reassert you know, human dominance. Yeah, he wants to annihilate them because he feels small and insignificant. Like, yeah. in in this knowledge that, like, oh, we actually know nothing, he lashes out and then, yeah, leads the amazing crusade into into Shernland, uh, which, again, in the... In the uh, wherever they shot that sequence, like... I, this, you gotta wonder. The, the, oh, I my mean, God. I, I know where they shot it. They shot it in Poland where they still had like at that time, like bombed out cities from world yeah. war two. So it's really convenient for them to just go, you know, shoot in like, Hey, remember this city that got fucked up in world war two that we still haven't gotten around to fixing. Like, yeah, we'll just go film there. Right. But again, it adds this really like kind of uncanny, uh, feeling because their buildings are so human. They're 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 in just like a <laughs> a European city. A European city, and the Sherns are like huddling in windows. There's even like a shot of one like <laughs> closing the, the blinds. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lamp too. Like yeah, yeah. Well, I really like too the the analogy you both were talking about before, where the Sherns are potentially the United States yeah. in Juwowski's like view while designing this film. And I like the idea that they finally arrived at this you know much discussed fabled city and it's just a dump you know like we're at the united states and we're like oh this is what we were thinking of as excellence all the buildings are decayed and there's just stacks of garbage that litter the all over the street it's like mounds of garbage you know that they're just having to traverse it's it's a really striking image of a society on collapse i mean this movie is 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 essentially like about like you know uh, man's search for meaning or something like that. But Zhuhovsky keeps coming to this conclusion that like, if you're looking for some, some answer, if you're looking for some like grand design, there is none. There's chance, there's accident, there's coincidence, there's collision, but, but there is no explanation. And, and, and seeking that and seeking that above all else 
is ultimately going to be your your again psychological perhaps or emotional like doom your demise your undoing right because on a certain level he's like the deeper you try to make sense of these these things the more questions you're going to find and and i guess then it it connects to his perhaps views of art of of again going back to the idea of the shern art that we can't see the shern art because it's like like do you want some exp- explanation of like you know the the theory behind shern art like what what is that going to do for you is that going to reveal anything to you like in the same way that like if you try to understand everything about movies about art about people about relationships they're gonna drive you fucking nuts and i would use that same wisdom to tell someone about highlander 2 the quickening don't look too close (laughs) yeah yeah you know enjoy enjoy some of the formal pleasures that are on display if you if you do try to unpack too much of highlander 2 the quickening it does all kind of you know it falls apart and there is that decay. But I do, you know, I do want to say again, like for, for me in Highlander too, like there are like really some, some very stunning moments in the movie. And I'm, I'm like with you in the fact that like, I can sort of laugh about a lot of things in this movie that don't make sense or are again, uh, an ultimate sign of the very troubled production that, that we had like, man, the moments of like spectacle in this are, are, better than like you know 90% of what you see today the whole battle which we've kind of already sort of talked about with the birdmen where connor regains his sort of you know his immortality his youth and everything how highlander got his groove back yeah, yeah. How highlander got his groove back uh like that whole shit with the aerials and the wire work i mean that stuff oh it's sick fucking rocks yeah, his hoverboard, the hoverboard and oh. fucking chase dude the yeah. hoverboard and like we watched the same documentary marsh where they're kind of explaining how they did that and that that is again like such to me like a an emblem from like the glory of the days when like there were skilled technicians putting together like practical effects and practical stunt work. Yeah, that and the train, uh, and of course to say nothing of, of the duels, you know, there's uh, there's two big duels between uh, Ironside and, and Lambert, and uh, we were joking about this, Andy, I don't know if you know, but in the theatrical, the two sword fights between them were one scene. Oh my God. They combine them both. And it's funny though, because this fixed version still doesn't explain where the katana comes from. Yes, I know. Because that was like the notorious joke is that there's like one single sword fight in the original Highlander 2, and suddenly he has a katana. Yeah. Um, His katana. Now there's two fights, and suddenly he has the katana. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I kind of actually understand the impulse to turn it into one because I do think the climactic sword fight isn't as cool as the earlier yes, one with the like first the elevator. One is the best. Yeah, that one's really sick. It's a long sequence too. Right. That, that I mean, it and is... I was like, it's a blink and you miss it with that last sword fight. Yeah. It's just kind of like, oh, the movie's getting wrapped up. They're at the Shield House now, and it's all taken care of. Katana's got to die by a katana. 
But Katana's not wielding a katana. Katana's wielding a broadsword, but, you know. I was also really confused at one moment when they're driving away. They're, like, leaving this parking garage or something, and Michael Ironside appears out of nowhere, and then Lambert and McLeod just runs him over right away, and they keep driving, and Virginia Madsen's like, yeah, that was great. Like, yeah. you know, thanks for taking him down. Well, I do know that whole truck sequence, by the way, was shot, like, seven years later wasn't it like that whole like chase scene with the truck and the yeah. fight on top of it was shot in like 95 or something like that did you know really? that that yeah. much lo- no they they like scraped some money together when they were like doing the renegade cut and and i guess somebody was like you know well there was this truck scene it'll kind of help if we can go shoot it so they basically just got madsen ironside and lambert back and went to some like mountain road and shot Whoa. that whole sequence. Okay, that makes it makes so much more sense because when that scene happened, and he lets Virginia Madsen take over the wheel, and then Lambert and Ironside are fighting on top of the truck, and it's kind of incoherent the fight. It's really hard to tell what's going on, and then eventually they knock Michael Ironside off of the truck, and we get this like silhouetted shot where he stands up. You don't see his face. It's like from behind, and like, so you're watching it, and then I, at first I'm like, oh oh shit, like they knocked McLeod off because they both have just really long hair yeah. and are wearing like flowing. Black dusters. Exactly. <laughs> and then when Lambert, like you, it's revealed like, oh no, that was McLeod survived. Like he's on the truck and he gets back in, but he doesn't say anything. He just like looks at Virginia Madsen and keeps driving. So my thought was like, oh shit. Like Ironside's a shapeshifter. Like he, like all this, like he's McLeod now. That Like that was yeah, McLeod back McLeod on the, in the dust. Road. Yeah. <laughs> But then the film just keeps going. No, and it's, it's like, absolutely like, not yeah. what allegedly happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's much more simple and complicated. Exactly. Really, yeah, because yeah. I think that's the thing. I did find so many of the action sequences really coherent and exciting, so it makes sense that this one that was tossed together multiple years later would have been the one that yeah. tripped me up. Yeah, even <laughs> you know? in the in the documentary, like Lambert was talking about, it. and I want to point out too, by the way, this documentary is like. You know, it's it's like whatever, it's fine. It was just something that was hobbled together for the DVD release or something, you know, one of those yeah. kind of things. But Lambert is is in all of his interview footage, he's wearing like a huge uh anarchy sweatshirt. Did you notice yeah. that? Oh, <laughs> he's yeah. just wearing a like a black sweatshirt with a huge red anarchy symbol on it. So very but good. I, I also gotta say, like he he pointed out that he was just like, Yeah, that was really weird going back and doing that. But, but Lambert, I've, I've also, I think I've talked about this on the pod, maybe even. Um, Lambert is at, uh, more or less like blind without glasses. And, and they've talked about how there were like a lot of accidents at times in the stunt work with Lambert where he'd like, you know, mishit swords. I think both Ironside and Lambert had they, that. Yeah, in. they had injuries. And so he's out here doing all these like very precise bits of like choreography for swordsmanship. And that poor stunt person on the other side has to know, like, this guy can't even see me. Right. I got to be really careful here. Yeah, it's funny that they decided that a dude with, like, a really thick accent and then is also near blind to be this action star in these big (laughs) English-speaking productions. Yeah, Yeah. hell yeah. That's pretty sick. Yeah, you know what else rules uh, that... At a certain point in Highlander 2, they go to the Supermax prison. Uh, they break in, 
and you know they're just trying to get some information who cares whatever but connery and lambert get trapped in a, a decapitation room yeah. uh, which is like a- almost seemingly set up exclusively to dispense with immortals because it's like <laughs> well the only way to kill them is to chop off their head so like here's the the giant fan decapitation room <laughs> Which is funny, too, because fans are uh, actually a Russell Mulcahy visual staple. Like, he uses fans visually with Shadow and and literally in basically all of his movies, which usually have this kind of, like, industrial flavor to them. But that's where we get, you know, the Connery, you know, just Connery is so, like, off-tone in this movie. I kind of love it because he's, like, doing a comedy and no one else is, obviously. Oh, yeah. Um, And particularly in this scene where, again, he just, like inexplicably uses i guess magic to to stop the fan and open the door uh, that's locked it just opens and then he sacrifices himself <laughs> to the fan gods I dude guess. again it's like it's really crazy when you think about it because like sean connery has to be in this goddamn thing and we want a lot of him they said like we don't want a cameo so if you really think we about want it, scenes of him going to the tailor most of his performance his 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 appearances in this film are just like him getting there. Yeah, transitions. Like, you know, <laughs> appearing in Scotland, you know, getting the tailor. There's a long sequence. We go twice to him on that airplane, just sitting on an airplane, like, yeah, hitting on the woman yeah. next to him. And then he like, he shows up, he gets there. He really doesn't help or contribute at all until this moment. Like that's really the only thing his whole appearance has led to was this one moment he doesn't where he fight can anybody. use magic and sacrifice himself knowingly. And I love that too, that when McLeod's like, will I ever see you again? My time here is over. You must go and search out Katana. It'll take the power of you both to destroy the shield. Will I ever see you again? Who knows, Highlander? Who knows? And he does a huge <laughs> wink. And it's like, wow, nope, that was it for Sean Connery. You'll never see him again anymore. <laughs> of the many uh, bits of Highlander media that would fall. You won't see him in Bond, and you won't see him in Highlander. Yeah, uh, yeah. as soon as that fucking, like, you know, inflated uh, you know, Argentinian currency, like, that check was cashed. He was gone. He was fucking out of there. Well, I saw, I don't know if this is official, I saw when I was trying to count how many Highlander movies there were, I saw that there's like maybe a new one coming out with Henry Cavill, uh, and maybe Connery's going to pop his head in there. Stop He's dead. It. Oh, that's right. He's fucking dead. I forgot. <laughs> you never know. Connery may have recorded a bit of Highlander stuff just before his passing. Maybe it's in a vault and they're going to use him. That's a little late Jesus to the news. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I heard Sean Connery might make an appearance in the new Highlander movie. Listen, they brought a lot of First guys back. First of all, he would have been like a hundred, digi- even if he was still. Alive. I know that's why it would be awesome. I feel like they bring a lot of guys back digitally, and it's very easy to do a Sean Connery impersonation. Oh yeah. I oh. hope he's back on the new one. Yeah, me too. I certainly hope so too. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I don't know if I told you guys this before, but like I dated a girl many years ago, um, and this is the coolest photograph I've ever seen. Um, and I, I, I fucking wish I had it still to this day. But her brother was like just the biggest dork, and he was 
100% like the number one Highlander fan who's ever lived. And he had a photograph taken. He had a black Camaro and he had this photograph taken of himself standing in front of his black Camaro wearing the leather duster, the leather like duster that like the Highlander TV series guy would wear. And he's just like standing in front of his Camaro and he had a personalized license plate that said Highlander, H-G-H-L-N-D-R. Wish to fucking everything. I still had that picture, dude. But this guy. I wish I had that life. Oh, dude, yeah. Like, and he lived in Florida, of course. Yeah. You know? Oh, hell yeah, dude. Well, where were we? We're very troubled. <laughs> I mean, like, it, these are troubled productions. Yeah. What do you expect? I mean, we've been all over the place because these movies are both I'm deeply all troubled. over the place, yeah. you know? And, and again, I think, like, that's that's what's sort of beautiful about looking at movies like this. It's always playing with the question of like what could have been, what might have been, what 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 should have been and and what do we have? And like I think like you know on the silver globe is just like again going back to its construction. It's like on a certain level this is the only way that it 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 could have ever existed, you know, sure. for, for obviously a lot of reasons. And that's like what's, whether or not Zhugowski could have even known this, it's sort of like baked into it. Because again, I go back to to that first section where, you know, the, the guy Jersey is explaining like at a certain point his approach to, to the documentation he's doing of this early civilization. And he says, I'm not going to get everything just so you know, I'm not going to be filming everything and I'm only going to be including the gist of certain things, things that I have chosen. Uh, and, and it's going to be an incomplete picture. The rest is sort of up to you to, to, to engage with. I'm like, that's what the movie is. That's what the entire movie is. It's Zhuwovsky's sort of, well, I'm, I'm only going to give you the gist of certain things, but even the gist for him is just so, like, packed. You could watch this movie 15 times, and, and every time you watched it, you would, you would discover something new. I gave up taking notes at a certain point on oh, this yeah. movie because... There's just every single line is a a philosophical statement, and and obviously Nietzsche looms large over Zhuwovsky, and especially in this film, you know, bad philosopher, but great poet, and and I I kind of feel like a similar spirit here that that like the poetry of this film certainly contains philosophy, but again like Nietzsche, it's not necessarily designed to explain to you how to live your life. It's, it's meant to disorder more than it's meant to, to order, you know? Yeah. And I think like the roving camera is, is so unique and singular to him, the way that his camera investigates the world in this world. Um, and it, it doesn't even try to be a seamless movie, even in the scenes that are shot. I mean, right. there are jump cuts, there's fourth wall breaks. I mean, nothing is sacred in terms of like classical filmmaking to him uh, because it's not that to him. It's not this hermetically sealed, perfect little, you know, concoction. It is more of, yeah, a philosophical text, a poetic text than uh, a narrative one, obviously. And it's funny that in comparison how orderly hard to be a god feels next to this movie because there's like a similar 
delirious primal energy that's sustained in both films. They there's like well, it's love. the performance is so yeah. different. I mean, Zhivatsky's performances are like there's so much movement, so much blocking. It's like interpretive fucking dance half the time. Yeah, uh, it's so expressive. Uh, and calls to mind, I, I don't even know, things beyond my understanding in terms <laughs> of acting, but it's not realistic acting. It's not method acting. It's not any of that shit, you know? It's like purely physical and, and the way everyone is always like gyrating, the camera's spinning around. Yeah, whereas Hard to Be a God, of course, a great companion film to this and mm-hmm. about a lot of similar ideas. They're both obsessed with 360-degree space. It's just... Gehrman's much slower about it. Yes. You know? like. <laughs> That's true. And then, yeah, you think about expressive acting and Sil- Silver Globe, and you've got Sean Connery, who was there for six days and just thought, I'll just do Bond. That'll wrap this up, and I can, <laughs> I can get out of here. <laughs> I think he was maybe doing the Kingsman. Doing a little Kingsman, maybe. <laughs> sure. I see it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess, yeah, and you know, you mentioned we've, we've watched a ton of, of troubled productions on this pod, but are there... Third shout out to the 13th Warrior, probably the previous most, tr- most tr- one of the most troubled productions yeah, we've discussed. I'd say Certainly. so. So, very troubled, yeah. Yeah. Well, what are some other, what's one that really like sticks out in your mind, you know, where you can feel it when you watch it? Yeah. I mean, I think so many. And again, like I, I didn't want to to say like you feel it from the sense of like it's a bad movie or you don't right. like it or whatever. I mean, like many come to mind, but I think like two that I find truly stunning when you consider all of the issues and the difficulties just off the top of my head, uh, you know, one would be a film directed by another uh, Aussie auteur, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, directed by George Miller. I mean, that movie had, you know, a horrific production when you find out about it. You know, fights on set, flash flooding, they got shut down, they had to do reshoots. And then when you see what they were able to do, I mean, Tom Hardy even said, like, he was miserable during the production. He 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 thought about quitting acting. He was like, this is a fucking shit show. This is horrible. Hated the experience. But when he then saw it all come together, he was like, I owe George Miller an apology. Like, I couldn't see it in all the chaos. The mad doctor. And the madness, <laughs> yeah, you know? Like, so I love Fury Road. Um, but, but really, I think the greatest of them all um, and also the, 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 I think the most troubled when you consider what happened, uh, stalker it's gotta be stalker. Oh yeah. You know? Sure. Of course. I mean, trouble that they may not even have seen at the time. Yeah. For yeah. Uh, what not they only were doing. did they shoot the film twice, but, uh, might've been some, they radi- might've been some radiation <laughs> issues. Yeah. I mean, it's horrifying enough that they literally shot the whole film, uh, and lost it all, and then shot it again. That's insane. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> oh yeah. Again, when you consider that it is like the greatest movie ever fucking made, and it was like their second attempt, and anybody will be like, well, you know, the second attempt was not nearly as good as you yeah, should have been the first, there was the first no magic, one. Yeah. yeah, you know. And I think even I read that once that the cinematographer was like, the first one we shot was amazing, you know. <laughs> and that's just totally yeah. fucking gone. Well, it's funny then. That's my homework for the three of us. It makes me think of another film that didn't have a chance to to shoot it a second time, something I almost picked for this had we not done a a full episode on her. But Doris Wishman made a horror film called A Night to Dismember, where they shot the film, they cut it, and then there was a fire, and the negative was destroyed. 
So she had about 20% of the film left, and the feature that we had for forever was recut using just the outtakes yeah. from the film. So the majority of the film is footage she had no intention of being in the movie. So it's supposed to be extremely like haunting and bizarre. And then uh, it was, I think, four years ago that the cinematographer found the original cut on a VHS in his home. So you can see the original and like compare and contrast. They're both like 68 minutes or something. Um, but we'll have to check that out sometime. Sounds pretty cool. I mean, there's so many. It's such a rich, it's such a rich topic. And I think it just, in, in, in short, um, really just emphasizes the fact that folks, it's really fucking hard to make a movie. Every movie is a miracle. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, it was Andy's topic yeah. this week. Yeah. What do we got next? Ryan, why don't you explain to our listeners what we've got next? Yeah. Well, you know, around this time last year, we had a very special episode where we watched uh, a very long film. Was a, I think it was about eight hours, the one we watched last year. Whew. And uh, that was a special little occasion. It's a long time. Uh, club that we have established, the Long Cinema Club. And, you know, I'm home for the holidays again, so I thought, let's settle in. Let's put on another long one. And honestly, it's been driving me nuts when we talk about, you know, how many double features we've done and how many films we've done. It's always been an odd number. So now this will round it out and we'll have a nice little even project here on the That's gauntlet. Right. So it'll be a very Long Cinema Club New Year, I think, by the time this episode will come out. That's we'll right. welcome in the new year with uh, another doozy. So stay tuned for that. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Let's get on with it. The punishment for rebellion is death. Judge them guilty, and I'll execute them here, now. You forget yourself, General Quintana. As you well know, for many years we have exiled who, like you, possess this unholy immortality. Therefore, I sentence you both to this same exile, an exile into the future. What? Silence, General Katana! In that distant future, you will face other immortals in trial by combat, of which only one will survive. And, as is your way, you will die only when your head is cut from your body. When we be together, one of the first. But we are joined in a way that can never be broken. Not even by death. When you need me, you'll only have to call my name. I'll always find you. Decyzją wiceministra kultury i sztuki od sekretarza stanu do spraw kinematografii zdjęcia do filmu na Srebrnym Globie zostały przerwane wiosną 1977 roku. Ekipa przebywała wówczas nad Bałtykiem, a komplet dekoracji i kostiumów koniecznych do zakończenia prac nad produkcją wszczętą dwa lata wcześniej wreszcie powstał i oczekiwał we Wrocławiu, na Dolnym Śląsku, na Mazurach i w Górach Kaukazu. Wszystkie te dekoracje, kostiumy i rekwizyty zostały zniszczone. Pracownicy wytwórniani, garderobiany, scenografowie przez lata całe przechowywali w magazynach i we własnych mieszkaniach to, co udało im się uratować. Kończą ten film myślącony. Zaś mały dramat tego filmu 
i wielki, oby szlachetny dramat naszego życia będą splatać się dalej we wspólnym sieci wzlotów i porażek. Nazywam się Andrzej Żuławski.